Yeah. Um, there's a there's time we've done it, but um, why are you interested in studying? Well, we, we have, you know, Lent coming up, and there is something there that that would uh, guess it's actually very helpful. That's <laughs> ah, a bad book. There are those harder books. There's uh, all scripture inspired by God. Oh, it says ten thirty there now. All right. Lord, with you, let's pray. Bless the Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant we men such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of thy holy word, may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we are at uh, John 13, um, and um, this is um, John's version of the Last Supper, and um, we might we might uh, begin with a question: Why is there no Last Supper in it? Last Supper. Jesus in John's gospel here is not going to take bread and give thanks and break and give. He's not after supper going to take the cup. Uh, he's going to do something else um, after supper. Um, th there is also, I should say, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. to jump back in. There's also this historical debate if you study John's gospel about whether um, uh, your best bet would be there or between these two yeah, right uh, lovely women who, who are, you would be in between two that would give you some chance of, some chance of, uh, with, dressed as you are for a spring day. <laughs> Incidentally, for being warm on on um, cold days, we had our class night here on a Saturday morning. This young woman had a blanket, and she said how warm it was, and I put it on for a second and started getting warm. And by a company named Rumpel, R-U-M-P-L, they have these blankets. So if you want one, it's a very warm blanket. So um, it's too late today. They, they don't have same hour delivery. So, um, But the there's this historical debate in John's gospel about whether John's uh, meal here really is the Last Supper, and we're not going to get into that, uh, because there's some issues of chronology that seem to indicate that John may be moving things up a day, and maybe it's a different kind of meal or something, um, but um, I don't think it's... 
clearly this this is the feast of the Passover and he is having a supper which certainly seems like that and but the question remains no matter how we look at it is why is there no actual last supper any ideas so the tradition does the tradition does suggest that John's gospel is late that is that it may be written last so it would certainly be informed probably by the other gospels and their tellings of the story is there anything else in John we've read so far that has some connection to the last supper any chapter about seven ago yes no only John so about seven ago would be chapter six of John where he fed the multitudes and then launched into a long discourse about I am the bread of life and unless you eat my body and drink my blood you have no life in yourselves so it's often been observed that John has given a kind of sacramental emphasis at another point and maybe that's part of what he's doing here is is just again highlighting another aspect of of the Last Supper we don't have a definitive answer but those are a question we should ask and an answer we should be aware of if we read John's gospel now one of the things we'll get and we'll just highlight this as we go through it it's really been present all of John's gospel but it's really comes out more and more in of which this sort of is a beginning that Jesus though he is going to be betrayed and all kinds of bad things going to happen he remains at every step in control and there's a there's a sovereign ordering of all of this that he is aware of so that even when people are able to do bad things and are and they're and the bad things that they that they focus on succeed it still is God's plan to do this and the eventual result of of that is is God's plan so that even the bad works for the good and the only thing you know I've highlighted this before and I think this is very very central to the whole way of looking at the Christian life because I believe that 
that same narrative framework, we're supposed to adopt that with regard to our own lives. And when you get in St. Paul saying, you know, all things work for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Or, you know, when St. Paul talks about in, you know, he's in jail and Philippians are worrying about him, he says, I want you to know that this has really turned out for good because this is what God is doing. And we want to be really careful about not simplistically following that narrative, like every time we suffer tremendous loss and pain, we immediately go, oh, well, God made it for good. And some Christians do that in a way that's damaging and insufferable. But it's, 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 so the fact that we suffer pain, it's really painful. And it requires, you know, agony and tears to go through it. But we endure it in a kind of hope. And then the further we get from it and the more we experience the narrative afterwards, the more we can begin to see how God has worked through that and how our lives can mirror this narrative of crucifixion that God's always in control. Uh, and is always, and, and, and that's the, the contours of trust. So we should be aware of that, that, it, that this is a perspective of Christ has about his own life, and we are baptized into Jesus Christ, and we are sharing in his cross and sharing his resurrection. So those same narrative themes apply to our lives. Whether we see them or not, he sees them. That's not that we don't see them. You know, and, and, and it, again, it, it's not to be applied simplistically where we try to cheer people up with Bible verses in the midst of pain. It's more that um, even when we're in pain, there's a certain distrust that God's got something here. It might take five years to see it, but but we that's how we suffer and hope, not ignoring the pain. And, even, and we should understand even in the Christian life that pain uh, is a place of prayer. And this is another thing that that we should understand because in our culture, a lot of times, prayer is about freeing us from pain. Lord, take this away. And we're going to see that even Jesus said that. And God said, obviously, no. So, so that God is with him in his pain. And as we're going through things, we don't abandon our prayer. We stay in that union, communion through our prayer. And we work through it in the Psalms and the, the language that really often pertains to the cross provides a rich language of how we share in that narrative of, of, of our own Good Fridays, but always knowing that Easter is coming. We don't feel a bit of it. I think this is one reason that the world around us um, has to avoid suffering so much, because it doesn't live in this narrative. Therefore, all suffering, all death is the mark of the world's failure. 
So we have to be very anxiously trying to solve all this and end every disease and cure everything because we face the truth of our existence, which is we're all going to get sick, we're all going to die, <laughs> and, and, and you can't avoid it. And, 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 and so in the Christian narrative, it's redeemed. In the world's narrative, it's avoided. We're talking about it, we cheer it up. And, and, and it creates a certain anxiety, I think, heightened now because we can't, can't avoid it. So you try to avoid that which you can't avoid, try to pretend it's not there, that, that causes anxiety. And anxiety, the avoidance of pain, it doesn't really avoid pain, it just substitutes a false pain of anxiousness and attempt to control for the authentic pain of embracing that which God has brought to us in our lives to work through. So, um, that, that's, that's the way to understand that. One time, I remember it. Whatever happens to someone bad, like, grace is multiplied to them. Well, I think there is a, when we suffer in Christ and use our suffering as a means of offering our lives more fully and surrender, it becomes a, a, a doorway through which Christ enters. And I think, I do think there is a reciprocal Easter for our Good Fridays. There, there is... Heaviness may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. He who goes on his way, uh, you know, the psalm I think is applying in, in, in sadness and bears good seed, will come again and bring the, the harvest with him. So that, that's how suffering's always in hope. And part of the, this is actually an overarching framework of the Bible that if we miss it, we're really missing a lot of the Psalms, is that in the Psalms, for example, the psalmist is suffering but pleading his case to God. God, vindicate me. Act for me. And the psalmist's posture is to endure faithfully in that relationship with prayer, waiting for that verdict that comes from God. And this is epitomized by our Lord, who's, who's going to the cross in his prayer, waiting for God to vindicate him in the face of his enemies and adversaries. And Easter is seen as the, um, the vindication of Jesus, the, the justification. God saying, yeah, you're right and they're wrong. And so, that's our lives are, are, are to be informed by this idea of bearing what we bear in relation to prayer, again, not without groaning and anguish, not without sadness, but without rebellion and disobedience, making our case to God, waiting for him to, to, to judge for us. Um, the whole book of Job, incidentally, is caught up in that. Job, though, he wants an audience with God. And, um, and 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 he he 
argues with his friend, but he doesn't. He just wants God to show up and vindicate him, and God does. After he brings him to some repentance, some humility, he says, essentially, Job, you're you're in the right. Your friends are wrong, and you. So that's the that's the idea of the Christian life: to maintain our innocence, to depend upon, to maintain our prayer, our faithfulness, our innocence through that, so that our lives follow the same trajectory. Would grief be something you can you can get stuck in other things if you're not, if you don't have that eyes towards God like the psalmist. And I think when you go through that, the, the result, as it says in the psalmist, is true in your life. Well, and I think there's actually an emotional, that when you face pain head on and don't avoid legitimate emotions you have in relationship to it, you become a healthier person because you mourn through it and you come out on the other side, there's a healing of emotions that happens. But if you deny it and push it aside, pretend like it's not, become emotionally unhealthy. And, and it takes a lot of anxiety and work to... Uh, to maintain that denial. And it almost always comes back in one's life, but sneaks out some other way. The denied emotion that we that we hide, we usually sneak out in some in some other way we don't, we're not, we can't control it because we're not processing it. Okay. So Verse chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jews, Jesus knew that his hour had come, and remember throughout John, his hour had not come. Now it's come. Now he's facing it. Now he's going to, now he's not going to run from anybody. He's going to show up and he's going to, he's going to appear before his enemies and he's going to make his case. Do this hour had come, he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> in John, deciding he loved his own, those who the Father has given me. <clears throat> he, he's, he, that was his vocation, and he's loved them to the end, to the completion of his ministry. So he's done what he, and, and we'll talk more about this love because it'll be a, a, a central theme of the foot washing, what this love is like. But he's loving his own, not because they're lovable, because we know that they're all going to run away. But he's not going to stop loving them because he is God who loves because God is love, not because uh, we're People, not because we feel good always about, not because God always feels good about the object of his love. And the more deeply we rooted come in Christ, in the love of God, the more our love will also mirror that same kind of thing. We love not because someone deserves it, because we love. And love has a heart, you know, it's not all just, oh, I feel great about everybody. It's doing what is best for somebody. 
but love sometimes will confront, and some, sometimes will, but it will fulfill the duty of seeking the good of the other, because that's what God does, and that's what we pick up as a kind of nature from God, whose nature we share in Christ and the Holy Spirit. He loved his own to the world, because his hour has come, he's fulfilled his vocation, and supper being ended, verse 2, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Again, part of the story that Jesus knows all about and is allowing to have happen. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hand and that he had come from God, was going to God. The whole emphasis here is this is not a mystery to Jesus, and he's in control of this, and God's sovereignty rules over it all. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, most people have heard sermons about, you know, the washing of the feet, that this is something that, you know, um, was of the lowliest kind of act in the, in, in the, the ancient culture that even certain servants couldn't be compelled to do it. So he, the, the, sim, the symbol of humility here is is very high that Jesus is, is taking a, a posture of washing their feet below that of a, ser- a servant. And, of course, the feet in a, in a world where you didn't have, you know, a bunch of shoes that covered your boots, you know, uh, and socks, you just wore sandals and yet dirty feet. So everybody, every visitor had to wash his feet. Or, or in, in order to, to, you know, there was a need to, to clean off the dirt on the road. So Jesus is doing this. Then he came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? A reasonable question. They should be washing his feet. They should be serving him. He is the king. He should be, he should, these roles should be reversed. Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will understand after this. Now, can you remember a teaching in the um, other gospels that kind of relates to this? when the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest, what did Jesus say? So that he who would be great among you, let him be the servant. That he was, you know, would be the least of all. And so this suggests, in a certain way, you could say this is sort of an acted out thing. But it's not really that. It's Jesus literally becoming a servant. Um, This is symbolic, certainly, of the cross, where he 
he um, so in um, if we had a, a clan and we knew someone had to die to save the clan, historically it would be who's most expendable. You know, who's going to do the menial work while well, the one we care about the least? Who's going to take the punishment while well, the one, you know, the one who, who, you know, doesn't have enough status to, <laughs> to keep away from it? And so Jesus is really establishing a brand new pattern here. <clears throat> There's a book um, called Humilitas. I, I don't remember the author's name about humility, but he makes the point that this is <clears throat> not only like what a neat new, you know idea Jesus has here, but it was a revolutionary in world history. What Jesus did had a lasting impact, and the fact now that we can even conceive of humble service as noble and a pathway to greatness and value that is due almost entirely to the life and death of Jesus Christ. So it's not just a little example, a neat little story. It, it had this kind of impact on the world as the gospel went out into the world. And it doesn't impact all of the world, but that's the idea. That, that it, but it, it certainly, uh, the narrative of this has resonance because of what Jesus did. That was great. It's not in truth, it's not clear that it's Mary Magdalene, it's Mary of Bethany, yeah, yeah. Mary, Mary of some kind. Mary shares Mary's name. But um, whoever she was, poured that out. It's like, I don't know, I, I can see the man becoming inspired by looking at this crazy ask. And she needed to do it because she was acting for God love. Like, he needed to be prepared for burial. Just that even spontaneously, that showed him the humility. Like, I don't know. I'm not saying it did, but I'm just saying, like, if she could feel that he was that kind of servant anyway, that's what we call her. There, 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 yeah, there certainly is a devotion that pertains to, it's clearly Mary of Bethany, whether, and, and probably not Mary Magdalene, because Mary Magdalene is from Magdala, which is in north Israel, and became disciples. It seems like that historical identification, what we digress, um, but, but, but Mary, um, clearly has a kind of devotion that's not afraid to, to take a very lowly place to carry it out. It's the wiping of the feet with fruit. It's kind of experience. <laughs> so verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now this is very Peter with the <laughs> pronouncements that that so he can't really he can't really fall through on it's just the impulsive, you know, I'll die for you. Like, well, you know, you do this and you know, and, and that that um like 
He likes to prove it. You'll never do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting here. Um, this also has its own uh, maybe application in our um, uh, sense of ministry because some people do not allow themselves to be served. And that's its own pridefulness. Pridefulness that you won't allow someone, you got to do it all, you're going to be the servant, but you're not going to allow someone else to serve you. And we should be aware of this in the body of Christ. Right there, I moved that fan blade about six inches. But um, that in the body of Christ, we all have gifts. And when someone has a gift that they want to give, we should be willing to receive it. Um, this is incidentally one of the things that we talked about if it informs um, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus says, give me a drink, which sounds like us, like a demanding customer in a restaurant. That's just the direct language of Hebrew idiom. But give me a drink means he's going to allow her to serve him. And that normally that that wouldn't normally a Jewish man wouldn't take a drink from a a woman, so he allows her to do it, and and so, and one thing this is this is also caught up in the idea of humility and service that we aren't fully who we are until we serve in the way we're called to serve, and and the whole idea that life is about how much I can get rather than how am I called to give and serve, and that there's a giving and receiving. We, of course, receive or serve by people. And that's kind of the, the genius of the body of Christ, where each person serves, and everybody gets the benefit of all the other gifts and offers their own contribution. And so, um, the unwillingness to allow someone to exercise a gift towards us is pride, is false humility. Or it's, I'm going to control everything, make sure I do everything where I can't allow someone else to do something. You and think that sometimes it's, it's, some people have trouble taking in. Well, they do yeah. because, and this, this actually this might be something to raise, it usually has to do with, with uh, um, well, okay, let me, let me if, if, I hope we get too far afield here. It has to do with an, a kind of um, self-loathing. A, self, a negative self-concept that is rooted in pride. Why? Because um, I won't receive anything because I'm, you know, I'm whatever it is I am. But that's a lie because God, Jesus died for each of us as we are. And if we won't receive that as we are, we can't receive grace. And so letting God receive us as we are and then having that carry over to letting others do the same. So the inability to do that usually is somebody who is is not reconciled their life and their experience of life yet to their prayer and acceptance by God. And they want to be who they wanted to be rather than being who they are. So there's this anxious attempt to 
I want to make it different by controlling it, which doesn't allow one to receive. So that usually is um, a negative self-concept that that makes someone unable to receive. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there's just arrogant people, yeah. you know, who, you know, maybe they're always receiving, you know, but 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 um, but 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 this is something to realize that we're we're not talking about, and and, and so sometimes a person like that will will have will feign a kind of oh, I'm just a servant of everyone. And it really is is um, unhealthy emotionally because there's no balance in it, and this is why with serving, um, in order to serve freely, we have to be able to not serve. We have to be able to determine where love requires service and where maybe because of what I've been called to do, I could do these couple things, but I have to say no, or it's going to pull me away from the thing God calls me to do. So when somebody is a compulsive servant, always having to give no matter what it is, that's a, a, a significant sign of unhealthy emotionality. And if you find yourself doing that, why, do, why can't I say no to anything? That's a problem. There's also... You know, every problem has an equal and opposite problem. There's the problem, the person who will never, you know, serve at all. And, and so everyone, there's all, there's a nuance, a range of uh, spiritual issues. But in spiritual directive kinds of conversations, we want to figure out, well, what's your issue? That's one you've got to work on. So. And we all like to, we all like to work very hard on everyone else's problems. <laughs> Rather than owning our own. So if I don't wash, you have no part with me. In verse 9, Simon Peter said, The Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So, you know, just, oh, yeah, okay, I'll take a full bath then. Okay. Yeah. And Jesus says an interesting cryptic and symbolic thing. Uh, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. What the heck does that mean? Huh? But what does it mean that he who's bathed needs only to clean his feet? I think there's a symbolic idea that that the washing of baptism and the coming to faith, which brings into relationship with Jesus, provides a basic cleansing. We probably need to clean off the feet, the dirt we pick up on the road as we're going along. We don't need a whole cleansing again. Uh, but and so they were all clean except one wasn't clean because he was a false apostle. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. When he'd washed their feet, taken his garment, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then your, teach, your Lord and teacher, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a serpent is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So an example, now, 
we have to take this, the, the, the symbolic nature of this. It doesn't literally mean that you should have a bucket of water and a towel everywhere. And uh, it means that the, 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 the willingness to serve another and to adopt a posture of humility in order to serve for the benefit of, of, of another um, I don't know what story just came to my mind, but there was a story of one of the popes in Rome, and, one, and it, that there was a rumor of a priest who had gone uh, off, you know, kind of, it might have been alcoholism, might have been something he fell into, was kind of abandoned his ministry. And the story went that he went and, and found this priest somewhere, maybe on the street, and the pope went and kneeled before him and said, I, yeah, I want you to hear my confession. And, and you know, let him exercise his ministry. So, so, but but the idea of service, this is something we have to think and pray about because it's an easy concept, but its application is one. And and again, in emotionally healthy ways, we have to understand where am I called to do this for the benefit? Where am I not called to do it? And sometimes it, this is an issue in the church. Um, that some people uh, compulsively serve without balance. And the problem with that compulsive serving without balance is when somebody does everything, it, it takes other people's work away. And, and so that's why we have to have a sense of vocation, what I'm called to do. And then, um, but I'm not called to do everything. And that's like when you're thinking about your gifts in church. Where am I called to serve? When you discover that you're in church or in life or all the places that you might manifest your service, to do that, you're going to have to say no to a lot of other places. So just because just because there's a need that you could fill doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, but it should be in that. You, but, it, but you shouldn't refuse it because it's too lowly and insignificant for you. You should not do it because you aren't called to do it. We should be willing to, to be humble. There's another, uh, we, we read a, a, a book by, we like an author named Henry Nowen, who uh, wrote a book called In the Name of Jesus. And, and he wrote it after he had left Harvard, where he taught, uh, and he'd taken a position as a chaplain at a, a residence with full of handicapped and learning disabled people and spent the rest of his life in that place. But that's the same kind of thing. He used to tell stories like, so that's, that would be a sign of, okay, I, I'm taking himself to a, to a new place of humility where no one, he, he writes in the book, you know, no one knew he was smart. And, and when he gave the really erudite sermon, no one really understood it. <laughs> they just cared whether he was there. So. That's the kind of thing, the willingness to take a lower spot. <laughs> Verse 18, I speak concerning all of you. I, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. What scripture is that? If you have a 
Bible, you should have good cross-references. So I'm, I'm, only, I'm only asking you to learn to use your, read your cross-references. Psalm 41, 9. What was the, um, what was the Old Testament reference point for this, the preeminent Old Testament story where, um, where in the first instance, when David wrote the psalm, um, he who eats my bread is lifted up his heel against me. Huh? Is it Absalom? No. Um, no, Absalom was a son. He'd already exiled Absalom, oh, so he, did, he was Saul, kind of... Saul and David here. There's a servant who lifted up his heel. Oh. His, his name was Ahithophel. Yeah. And, um, and he, he joined the rebellion against David. And then in the rebellion, uh, he ended up being rejected in favor of a, of a spy that David planted. And Ahithophel went out and killed himself. So it mirrors the story of Judith, of Judas, in the same way that he's, who knows what Judas is thinking, but these narrative patterns repeat. And um, so maybe that's another narrative story if we want to follow and be follow God, be be follow Christ. Expect to have some people who don't remain faithful with us. Interesting that they both commit suicide. That's Psalm 41. David referring to that in a larger way, fulfilling in the life of Jesus. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. Believe that I am. And notice in verse 19, if you have a Bible like I do where they put the non- the words that aren't there in italics, the, the verse literally says, I tell you before when it, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent So the apostles are going to go out and they're, when they're received in the name of Jesus, it's as though they're receiving Jesus. When Jesus has said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, saying, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So he is troubled in spirit and realizes existentially here, this is about to happen. It's one thing to talk about in this camp, another thing like, okay, it's tough. Disciples then looked at one another, perplexed about whom who he spoke. The other was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. We know that to be who? John. John, who wrote the gospel. So, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Likely a euphemism that, that John used that everybody understood, the beloved. And it's likely that Jesus, that John was a little younger, and, and they just had that sort of natural affection. He was next to him. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have given it. So he's, he's revealing this to John. Peter's asking him, it's a, it's a table. There must be different conversations and commotions. It's not everyone's hanging on every word. Not everyone hears it. 
And just if you like give the bread to Lee Gibson, it gives it to um, Judas Iscariot's son, Simon. It's interesting, there's a Old Testament cup theology. There's the cup of communion, but there's also a psalm that says in the God has mixed this cup and, he, and the, the ungodly will drink of it. So there's this is sort of the cup of judgment to, to and it would be the idea because it's also the cup of, of, of blessing for those who receive him, but for those who don't, it becomes their rejection of it becomes a judgment. What? Yeah, she has a cup. The whore of Babylon has a communion in, in Revelation where there's, in Revelation, there's a, a parallel. There is, um, there's the, the, the unholy trinity, the, the, the beast from the land, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet. And then there's the woman uh, who's a caricature of the church, the unfaithful woman, who I believe represents old covenant Israel. Who, who draws people into that compromised relationship. Then there's the true bride who, who invites people into the marriage supper of the Lamb through repentance and faith. So, um, verse 27. After the piece of bread, Satan entered him. What a frightening. Jesus, and, and so notice here that the whole cosmic drama, this gets back to even Genesis. Jesus, the new Adam, Satan, the serpent, the same characters uh, are there. And um, even the, the disciples, the bride of Christ. What? I don't understand what is the significance Go to go carry out the trail. Yeah, I mean, we're told that he stole money from the treasury, and but a, a petty thief is not a betrayer of the Son of God. Yet. So, so the act of um, this, he gives them of the bread and cup, which becomes not the means of communion with God as it is for the disciple, but the means of being sold out to the evil one who enters him and he carries out that that role in the in, in that that extreme role of betrayal in the in the drama.
I think that's right. I mean, I think you you probably have a um, a lot of common people who, who believe at some level to become kind of sold the other direction, and to some degree, the the the, the thing that he um, and, and there's nothing about this too because I, I think we have a pride on the part of of Judas. He I, he probably followed Jesus thinking. There was going to be some visible reality and positive things in life, and that, that he liked all that stuff. But but now, I, I suspect that after Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he is done. This is it. So that the heightened act of service, which meant their salvation for Judas, was beneath his dignity. He didn't want to follow a guy who was going to do that. So, and this, this also is the, um, this does actually directly play into the horror of Babylon imagery because the betrayal of the unfaithful woman represented by Judas, who is Jewish and rejecting the Messiah, colluding with the world. That's the exact image of the whore of Babylon. That informed, since John wrote that also by tradition and clearly by thematic correspondence. Jesus said, "Then what you do, do quickly." He's great. Okay, we're going to do this. Let's get it. Let's get it going. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this. Some thought because Judas had the money box. And Jesus had said to him, "Buy those things we need for the feast. Get something to pour." Having received a piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Very significant for John. He's no longer walking. Remember what he said earlier, if you walk in the day, you will not walk in darkness. But it's not so much night, it's dark outside, but he's left the light, which is the proximity of relationship with Jesus. And now he's in the darkness. Which replays, in, in essence, the cosmic drama of angelic fall. When the evil one in the beginning decided he wasn't up for what he saw from God, didn't like the way God was doing it, and left, he it was not the prince of darkness because there's no light. Can't see. It doesn't mean you can't see anything. It means you can't perceive the true nature of things. Going again, Jesus said. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him for himself and glorify him immediately. And the glory here in John's Gospel and in all the Gospels is the cross. It is, it is, um, it is why at the Creed, when we 
genuflect the incarnation, we come up and was crucified also for us, because that's when Jesus is lifted up and glorified, and it's this paradoxical meaning. And also the cross ensures the faithfulness unto death, ensures the resurrection. So the actual glory of the cross will become evident Easter day. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. As I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But this is, this is the verse from which we get Monday, Thursday from. Because the new, in Latin, the new commandment is new mon- mandate, where we get a mandate from, the new Monday. Um, so Jesus, who is the Son of God, who, 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 through whom the Father gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, now gives a new commandment that there should be love in the community. Um, and that that would be the sign that distinguished his followers from the world is that love present in the community. And it's, again, it's very specific that um, you should love each other as I have loved you, which means that the, act, the action of each member of the body is, is seeking the good of the other and willing to adopt a certain posture of humility to bring it. Um, it's interesting in um, is this being a a uh, sort of lesson for the church. Um, In, in, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where he gives, he writes letters to the churches, um, he starts with Ephesus, which was, um, interestingly, the church that John spent a lot of time at. Um, he says, here's what he says about the church in verse 2. The risen Christ says about the church, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have testified, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my sake, and have not become weary. Read the resume. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Therefore, if they don't repent, they're going to lose the church. So when he says it's, it's not that they should believe in false things, it's not that. Um, it's that that's not a substitute for love. It should be an expression of love. So that um, that that love is the and is the is the hallmark of the church. And the only way it can be maintained is when the members of the body themselves maintain their own lives of prayer 
through which each experiences the love of God. So that when we say that you love one another as I have loved you, it can't just be like, oh, you know Jesus died, but also you experience the reality of Christ's love in your own life now. You come with your sins and you have them forgiven. You come in your weakness and you find that strength. And you experience this grace, Christ loving you in that way. And this is what allows you to love another, the way Christ loves you. And I I think apart from that being an experience of life, I don't think we can do it. We'll digress into, well, you didn't do that for me. I'm not doing that for you. We'll digress into, rather than loving others out of the fullness of our experience, we come to love others out of our emptiness, our need, what we need from others. So this is where we'll get later on. He talks about um, the vine and the branches and bearing fruit. Only by staying connected to him can we do that. Remember, that's the mark of love. This mark of being a disciple is love. Love is always not touchy-feely again. Love is sometimes the ability to say, you know, you did the wrong thing. It's not acting like, you know, but it's it's always for the good of the other. It's not vengeful. It's not, it's not I'm so mad at you because you did that. I'm going to take vengeance sevenfold. It's I want you to understand what you did with the idea that you would see it and come back. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And I think with, with Peter there, you know, I think we, we could say, you know, this is brave talk and all this stuff, you know, Paul's doing, but I don't actually think that Peter, I think I said this before, I don't think Peter was at all cowardly. I just think the battle that came upon him came upon him in a way he did not understand. It's like, if we understand the spiritual battle, we, we're not, okay, I'll fight the enemy, I'll go down punching and kicking, but what is this supposed to go down what you're just supposed to give up. Maybe if you fight the battle by surrender, I think that was the cognitive dissonance for Peter. Because then we get to Gethsemane, he's going to want to grab a sword. It's like, no. How does how does it work this way? So I think it, it's the cognitive dissonance rather than any particular cowardice. And I think we've had that before, each of us in our lives, where we felt bold, then we, we have a situation of kind of spiritual attack, and we you find how quickly it is, is to, how easy it is to give in. That's where the whole idea of watchfulness and being aware of the nature of the battle comes in. All right. We'll stop there. What we're going to get in now to for the next few chapters, it's interesting in John's gospel, is an extended discourse of teaching. It's placed in John's gospel here as instruction to the disciples how they're supposed to Behave after he goes away. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. 
The Lord lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Incidentally, um, just because uh, uh, a man in our vestry, Brett, has done so, all these classes are now recorded. And there's an audio, if anyone, I'm not, you know, trying to say, but I, I just, I, he said he'd done that because we're doing morning and evening prayer recordings, which has some meditations. And he said, just all these things, so I just went and checked it out. Well, sure, sure enough. Where did he find it? Well, he recorded ours Well, here? this is, this is recorded. Yeah. Oh. This is record. This is, he's recording it. Not a, not a video recording. It's just a, just a voice Got and it's video. not published. To yeah. anyone, yeah. you know, you couldn't even find it unless I show it to you. Yeah. But if you were interested, it it exists. Yes, I've been recording you every time. Okay, it was so, so good. So if you like that, I, yeah. I can I can show so you. So he's been recording you from the very. Beginning. Well, he we just started it because he wanted to. We're doing morning and evening prayer each day online. We have a significant audience for it, but some people can't come right at seven thirty and write it, you know, four thirty. So if he was sick, we record it. And so Brett has worked for the last couple months. And the answer is yes, and he's done it. And now you can get morning and evening prayer at a time other than. So we're just starting to do it. We, we're going to we'll publish it more. It's kind of being beta tested now. Thank you. Hello, I didn't get to ask a question. Yes. Um, I don't understand the significance of Jesus dipping a piece of bread and giving it to Judas Iscariot. Why did he do that rather than just say, you know, go and do what you have to do? What, why did he give him the bread first? Well, I, well, I think it's it's significant of, I, I touched on this, it, it, we talked about the verse in the Old Testament, there's a concept in Psalms of the cup of judgment that is poured out on the ungodly. And you have this parallel communion here. He's just given you know, the, in, in the community of the meal with his true disciples, he's expressed a fellowship and a union communion with him in his, in, and, and now Judas in his rejection of that is, is, is communing with the rejection of Jesus, which is alliance with the evil one. And, and so it, he beco it becomes demonic in his manifestation. So it becomes a symbol of judgment against him. Yeah. So, so looking at um, as as uh, someone pointed out in Revelation, there is um, the whore of Babylon in chapter eighteen, who, who has a cup that her followers that she offers to her followers. It's a cup of compromise of selling out to the world. And Judas is emblematic of one who who shares in that cup. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. She's judged. She's judged. And be judged. A suggestion for if. Yeah, we all do. Letting just Christ be following us, like like Peter, like not taking the sword, but learning surrender. Like, well, most of us, us most of us learn surrender 
by a series of things whereby we didn't surrender and we repent and we are convicted and we come back and repent. So there's a distinction in the in the, in the spiritual life between um, willful rebellion and weakness under trial. Peter's weak under trial. He does not willfully rebel. And so that's, we, we struggle and we, we are amazed. But so we, we, what we do when we fall, we stumble, we, we come back, we reconnect, we learn, we grow. How do we not avoid those things? How do we become a little stronger in resisting that? So that's the, that's the distinction between Peter and Judas. Okay. I've seen that. When you see all the consequences of that, it's just like, God, I will make this right. As long as we hold on to Jesus, the, the teaching of this gospel in the New Testament is uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sin. But the one thing we cannot do is give up. That's, that's, that's why perseverance is such a central virtue that pertains to faith. Good Thanks for braving the uh, Arctic winter we have here. It's toasty. It's not too bad. It's, yeah. it's, uh... That distinction you just made. Bye. Elizabeth, Ed, good to see you guys, Joan.